Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to this podcast from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Robert Ferguson, author of The Hammer and the Cross, A New History of the Vikings. More than a millennium on from their heyday, the Vikings are still capable of arousing strong emotions. Their raid on the holy island of Lindisfarne, off England's northeast coast in the year 793, was so shocking, so brutal, that it burned itself into the collective memory of Western Christendom for centuries. Robert Ferguson's book, informed by deep knowledge of Scandinavia, where he has made his home for over a quarter of a century, aims to restore the violence of the Viking Age, but also show that the Norsemen were not a people without a complex culture, and that their violence existed within a context in which paganism was fighting one of its last great battles with Christianity. The book has occupied Robert for many years, and taken him into a wide variety of fields, such as archaeology and dendrochronology, so I asked him first what had persuaded him of the need for a new book on the Vikings. I think it was because it dawned on me at a certain point how very fruitful it was to compare what's going on now with what was going on then. And it becomes much more easy to see it as a culture collision, a clash of cultures. I think it's been more, the case has been rather more to say that the onset of the Viking Age was, was triggered by land shortage in Norway and the practice of primogeniture, where only the oldest son could inherit property, so there was a lot of younger brothers and so on who had nothing to do. So it's been presented really as a kind of form of piracy, with no kind of intellectual or, or, or no ideas behind it at all. I'm not saying that there were necessarily ideas behind it, but one of the new things about this book is that um, it looks outside Scandinavia for a major cause of why the age began when it did. Once I realised that you were looking at two distinct, not Christianity and the absence of Christianity, but Christianity and heathendom, and I've tried in this book to treat heathendom, to take it seriously as a, a working system, as, as a system that evolved and that the practitioners found, as far as they could see, it was a perfectly adequate system. They didn't particularly want to change it. So that when it appeared to be under the threat of what we would now call cultural imperialism, the Christian missionary imperative, when that, when Charlemagne appeared on the scene and became so, such a determined advocate of Christianity, at any cost people were to be converted to Christianity, then it became very interesting to me to see the whole thing in the light of the fact that one of the most important reasons for the outbreak of the age would be acts of cultural self-defence, if you like, almost, it is anachronistic, but almost terrorism. Because they couldn't face the might of the Frankish Empire face to face in the battlefield, so they resorted, as many a small culture will do when it's under cultural threat, to 
terrorist-like activities, violent manifestations on, frankly, soft targets like monasteries and so on. And of course, there was money to be had, things to be stolen as well. But there was no need to burn these places down and kill these unarmed monks. No need to do that at all. So I think that you have to look for some explanation for why there was an almost psychopathic edge of hatred to this, and it wasn't simple robbery. And once, this is a very convoluted answer in a way, but the, once I, I, I felt convinced of the fact that this was a cultural collision between two uh, cultures uh, which valued themselves equally and neither wanted to give way, then you had some kind of story, you had some kind of story to be, to be told. So the argument you're pursuing is that Charlemagne is a forcible conversion of heathens on the European mainland, if you like, yeah. increased a sense of threat to the, to the northern peoples and yeah. a, a desire to, to either take revenge or to define themselves and not, not sort of wait for it to happen. To them. Exactly, yeah. That's it. In Charlemagne's case, it was in particular the Saxons, who were the sort of buffer tribe in the northeast of Europe, between his empire and, and the Danes of the Jutland archipelago. The leader of the Saxons, I mean, this is a campaign that began almost from the moment he, he became sole ruler in 771. The leader of the Saxons was a man called Widukind, and he was related by marriage to the, to the Danish king. And during the course of this very violent 20-year period between, let's say, 771 and 793, the Lindisfarne raid, Charlemagne devoted an extraordinary amount of energy, I think it was 22 campaigns, to the forcible conversion and incorporation of the Saxons into Frankish Christian culture. I think it's easy for us to to, to, to empathise with that now, because we've seen in our own times, in former Yugoslavia in the 90s, uh, even Northern Ireland, you see how what passions, what appalling passions, uh, cultural differences can give rise to when once that genie is out of the box and you have to ask yourself because one of the things you have to ask yourself is why did it begin when it did and i don't think simple explanations of piracy or land shortage can account for why it began when it did i mean these are these are not overnight processes but for example charlemagne's campaigns included a, a massacre at a place called Vaden on the river assa where, and this is from Frankish sources, so it, there's no reason to suppose it's an exaggeration or a lie, 4,500 unarmed Saxon captives were forcibly baptised and then beheaded. And uh, you can imagine what sort of stories you can, would then tell when he crossed the border, and you can imagine how they would respond to that from Denmark and, and Northers, and, and they would ask themselves, well, uh, what should we do? Shall we wait here and, and uh, to be converted by this, this mighty prince with his sword and his cross? Or should we do something about it? And I'm not really suggesting that it was actual councils of war, that, but a, a general feeling that the, the Christians were the ones who'd gone beyond the pale. This partly accounts for the psychopathic intensity of the first two or three decades of Viking raiding. I mean, you, you talk about the fact there had been contact between these peoples for centuries. It wasn't as if the Vikings appear on the horizon one day no. out of nowhere. There had been, you know, there had been trade and there had been communication yeah. between these people. So obviously yeah. there was something sort of driving this, yeah. this the, change of policy, to put yeah. it that way. And the extraordinary thing is that uh, everybody knows that little quote from Alcuin, who was uh, Charlemagne's, if you like, spiritual mentor. But he was from York, so he knew that area intimately where the first terrible raid took place in 793. In that same letter, he's addressing the king of Northumberland, where the, where the raid was. And in that letter, he goes on to saying, it's almost like 
I told you so. There's a rather vindictive couple of sentences where he says, and look at you, how you, you and your courtiers, I'm paraphrasing, how you've wanted to copy these people's hairstyles of these pagans. And now look what they're doing to us. You know? So obviously they were familiar with them. He also goes on to, to, to complain about the licentiousness in the monasteries. And what are they doing reading uh, Be a Wolf to each other? Why? And having actors and voluptuaries at the table. Why aren't they reading from the Bible and so on? You know, almost presenting it as, well, you deserve it. You know, this is God's punishment via the Vikings. Now, from what you've said already, Robert, it may seem as though this is a sort of an apologia for the Vikings. Yeah. But you say early on in the book that you want to restore the violence to the, to the Vikings because you talk about the pendulum swing, you know, how, how the Vikings have gone from being heroes to villains yeah. and backwards yeah. and forwards. Yeah. But you're not essentially sort of presenting an apologia for the Vikings. No, I'm not. But I'm saying that I'm just adding that reason which I think we have more understanding of now. I mean, I, I don't support terrorism. You may understand why terrorism arises. It doesn't mean to support it. It just means that you can think of a reason other than the fact that I have no idea why they did it. You know, It simply gives you a reason that you can understand. And I think that the circumstantial evidence, when you're going back 1,200 years, and really very, nothing is written down on the Scandinavian side. You know, they, they don't say this anywhere. But one just empathically puts oneself in the, in the position of, of, a, of a threatened culture, a uh, small, weak, well, relatively weak, compared to the might of Frank Schemper. And how do you deal with it? So that I'm not, no, it's not a, I'm not saying that they were here because I mean, they had, they suffer from the same kind of contemptible um, ethics or whatever it is that terrorists do in that they'll kill anybody. People who've done them no harm at all. These monks had done them no harm personally. The monks weren't armed. They had no warning that these attacks were coming. It's extremely cowardly if you look. There's nothing to admire there at all. If one wants to admire them as warriors and soldiers, then you have to wait until the middle of the ninth century when this major, this huge army called the Great Heathen Army comes over and starts proper confrontations with, with the kings of, of Wessex. And, and uh, this is something that goes on basically for the next 170 years. And these are proper confrontations. So if you want to admire soldierly military virtues, well, here, now's the time. But I don't think these first four or five decades, there's very little to admire there. But at least I think we can understand, and uh, but not understand in the sense that we condone it, but, but just an explanation of why it happened then. Tell me about the difficulties of trying to get inside the Viking mindset, because there are pre-Christian people, there are, there are barely literate people, there's, there's very little written from within, it's all outsiders' perceptions. Yeah. How do you begin to reconstruct how they thought about the world? It's very difficult, it's uh, extremely difficult to do that. You have to use a, a fair amount of empathy, you have to use, I mean, archaeology is, is really the, the major source. Now, I'm not an archaeologist, but, but I, uh, of course, in, in the course of research for a book like this, you do try to cover everything that archaeology has contributed. And uh, rune stones, the skaldic poetry, which is this very elaborate poetry, which contains the, the skaldic poets were the custodians of the what we, spiritual culture rather than religious culture. And, and so that they were, so to speak, the experts on all the stories of the gods and the creation myths and, and the death myths, what happens after you die and so on. Although these things weren't written down, they were composed according to such very strict metrical and technical rules that they survived over the centuries unchanged because you couldn't change them. Any later scribe would have known that he couldn't possibly get in there and change it, otherwise it wouldn't work. Really, very, very tight metrical and technical rules. So that those poems, these, they're very often they're very often praise poems as well of a king, not related to battles, where he was, what he did. That's one kind of source. You do get written sources from you know 
Iceland, you know, you get Ari, Ari the Wise, and, uh, and you get Snotty, but that's much later. You have to, I mean, really, you, you can't theorise in a watertight way at all. You just have to be aware all the time that you can't completely rely on, on, on the written sources, not even on written sources such as like Adam of Bremen's uh, history of the Archbishopric of, of, of Hamburg Bremen, because often these people had a kind of hidden agenda. I don't mean that to sound sinister, but they were writing these histories for a purpose. Adam's purpose was to promote the role for political reasons of his diocese in the conversion of the Scandinavian countries. Whereas in actual fact, there was more missionaries from England were involved in that particular, in the, in the mission fields in Scandinavia. Uh, Ali wanted to, to, to uh, promote the role of his own ancestors, uh, make them more important in the settlement of Iceland. And so on. You just have to be slightly aware of these things, but you'll never reach some kind of cold, objective truth about it. You just have to share with the reader the fact that, well, these are the conditions of the study. I'm not going to call them problems because what's the point? It's still, it's still if you can weave it in at the same time as leaving people with an awareness of the fact that this is true, but this is a little bit more doubtful, but it's possible. Yeah. And, and historical characters are always, as you suggest, sort of slipping off into the idiom of legend, aren't they? They're, it's very difficult to know when, when the, the history stops and the legend begins. Yeah. I think a lot of people who are very keen on the Viking period, I think they know about the Viking period. What they know about is the legend, around that hairy breeches, you know, and Ivor the Boneless and uh, Harold Bluetooth, these wonderful names. I make some attempt to disentangle fact from fiction, but it's extremely difficult. And that's one, it's actual fact, it's one of the beauties of the story that these people become legend and that being a non-literate, I won't say illiterate, I don't think they were any less intelligent than the, than their Christian, than the Christians, but they, they simply didn't develop that kind of writing culture. They had runes and they carved things in stone and they made poetry orally. Is it possible to say, in a, an age which was very marked by its violence, that the Vikings were, even by those standards, exceptionally violent? Or is that just because the chronicles come from the other side, as it were, and so the shock is at being attacked rather than doing the attacking? It's, it's hard to know. I mean, if you look at the, the literary vicinity of the Lindisfarne attack at the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, there's a lot of brutality that's got nothing to do with Vikings that both precedes the entry, for example, of Lindisfarne and, the, and, and, and succeeds it. But there again, the kind of violence described is often for political ends. Remember that these first raids have no known reason at all. Part of the bewilderment of them was, that, what, what, what have we done to these people? I mean, the 806, I think the, the, the Iona community, I don't know, Hebrides, was wiped out. There were 68 members. It's shocking because it's a small number of people, but it's also shocking because it's a large number of people. And the analysts knew exactly how many people were killed. And if it was just robbery, they were interested in why kill these people? And why burn the churches down? The word psychopathic is almost meaningless, but in the, me in the way that we understand that meaningless word, there's a psychopathic edge to this, which I think probably goes a little bit beyond the, the violence that was current. I mean, in the Irish annals, you find too, the, the, the monasteries regular, regularly pitch battles with each other. But you, you, and you'll find references to the fact that such and such a king burnt the land of this monastery up to the church door. He didn't burn the church itself. They were observing some kind of standard of behaviour. But the, the Vikings, it seems part of the aim of the thing was to burn the church and to, to trash the institution. There's an entry in the Royal Frankish Annals uh, which describes a, man, a Saxon who was uh, killed in the act of trying to set fire to a church. It was part of the aim of attacking a church was to set fire to it. 
which to me strengthens the idea that there's some kind of cultural hatred going on or a cultural vendetta is underway. I wondered, finally, if you could just sort of say what you think the lasting legacy in this country was of the Viking settlements and the contact in that direction for the, for the indigenous people. I guess the lasting, um, the, the manifestations which are most evident to us now would be place names, particularly in the east and the northwest of the country. I mean, these are Lower Stuffed, Grimsby, Nutsford, all over the place. Once you know what you're looking for, an extraordinary number of names of these places have, uh, are um, from Scandinavian. Extraordinary number of words are from, uh, from Scandinavian. And unlike the kind of words that, that came in after the, the Norman conquest, which were, since that was an aristocratic con- conquest, they would be words associated with the kitchen, the sort of uh, upper class, to use an anachronistic term, but upper class. Whereas most of the, the, the loan words or the words that have gone into the English and Scottish that I'm talking about, they were more, more prosaic words. So there's, the, I guess those are the, those in, in, in the sense of knowing and the value of that is just knowing where we came from. It's just knowing that the names have a meaning. If you trace it back, things come from somewhere. I find a certain comfort in that, you know.